So Space, the podcast, where we talk about space stuff, but, you know, it's not really, I don't really intend for it to be like, oh, let's sit down, like, 101, memorize these numbers, or whatever. It's more intended as, like, uh, yeah, let's talk, and if you learn something along the way, that's great. What do you think, Dad? I think that's a lot of fun. Also, I love everything to do with space. I love, I love the universe, I love the planets. I love the earth. I think it's just a lot of fun. Are you a little low energy today? What, is it coming through? Er, I'm oh, quite a bit low energy, so that's why I ask. <laughs> oh, well, well, you just woke up. Mm-hmm. I have been up for a good long time already. Have you been sleeping okay? I've been sleeping pretty well. I slept well last night. Yeah, sleep is important, but yeah, Robbie and I, we uh, we went to the, the Monterey Aquarium yesterday. Do you remember that place? Oh, I remember it very well. That's a wonderful place. It is, but oh my god, it was so crowded. It was insane. Like, when Tara and I went, my friend, since we were like babies. Anyways, so when Tara and I went with, you know, the families and everything, I remember being able to like, look at the little like, fish tanks and be like, wow, that's so cool. And then like, run over to the next one and be like, wow, that's cool. And you and like, Dick and Stephanie and mom would, and maybe Leo would like, slowly take your time like, looking through that stuff. But like, this time it was like, oh my god, there's a gap, like, go, look at that fish. Okay, <laughs> someone else is trying to butt in, like, we gotta go, like, oh my god, someone's taking a picture for way too long, like, it was a lot. Oh, that's, that's, that's unfortunate, because I, I remember it exactly the way you described it. I used to love going there with you, and, and with Dick and Stephanie and Tara, and uh, Mom and Leo, and it wasn't all that crowded, but, you know, people have been locked up for such a long time. That's true. And they suddenly feel that they've just been let out. Everybody has to go somewhere. I know. In hindsight, I feel like, oh, maybe I, we should have gone when, like, school was still in. Because there were a lot of, like, those age kids where it was like, oh, they would have been in school. I just shouldn't have gone during the summer or something. Yeah, maybe. But you, you can go You can go in the fall when school is open again. That's true. I don't know. It was kind of funny. But not funny. But, <laughs> you know, do you remember the, like, little tide pools? And it's like, be gentle. You can touch the, like, the kelp or whatever. But just be careful. Mm-hmm. Like, just be gen- they're delicate. And this kid <laughs> pulled the, like, kelp out of the water. And then he just, oh like... Oh, my Lord. It looked like they, like, ripped it sideways. And I'm like, oh, my God. And then there was, like, this other one where it's like look, you can look at, like, the sea anemone, and, like, it's really cool. It's, like, look with your eyes, not with your hands. And this, like, one of this lady who's, like, but she's, like, poking the anemone, and it's, like, curling in because it's, like, touch me. And I'm, like, oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm, like, I really don't think you're supposed to touch those ones. So, uh, yeah, they should put a full glass thing on that one. Yeah, but it's, it's actually, it's really part of the experience that you can get it so close to a tide pool that way. It's, they did a wonderful job. They did. There's another science museum uh, in Miami called the Frost Science Museum. And they have both a, a regular science museum with a planetarium and an aquarium. And they have tide pools and they also have a gigantic bird enclosure where you can go and get close with it, to the seabirds. Ooh. Have we been there? As a family? No, you and I have never been to my, to Florida together. Oh, in Florida. Huh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, Miami. Ah, uh, well, anything 
exciting happen over your week that has been... Is that orange juice? That is orange juice. My coffee. Yeah, I had my coffee a while ago, but I you're making me envious. I'm going to get some more coffee immediately after we finish. Okay. <laughs> so what what's what's happened that's exciting? Well, actually, not so much on the science side, but we're rearranging one of our buildings a great deal. And the, the actual physical work in the building started today, so carpets have been torn up and walls have been taken down. Well. I was just in there this morning, and there were workers all over the place moving stuff around. What are you rearranging for? Just updating? Well... We our, our needs have changed, and we're just we're compressing the amount of space we occupy. It's partly a consequence of what we've learned during the pandemic. A lot of people are going to be working at home some of the time, so we don't need as much office space. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of nice, though. Mm-hmm. Oh, this was other another thing which I kind of I guess builds off of the last episode. But Robbie and I saw like a documentary about like climate change or global warming, and like how we're past the threshold of like ocean acidity and like. I don't know. Do you get depressed when you hear those kinds of things? Like, even now, like, oh, there's fires raging in the, like, the Pixie or Dixie fire. All the floods happening in China and Germany. Even New York. Yeah, it's pretty disruptive, actually. Uh, well, the evidence that cli- the climate was changing in a significant way has been with us for 20, 30 years now. Mm-hmm. And I think finally people are going to start paying attention to it because it's beginning to have consequences. And uh, things could get more serious. Um the biggest concern for flooding is actually with coastal communities because as the sea level rises, the, the high tides start inundating. Mm-hmm. Wait, what does inundating mean? It means the, the water comes in into the um, uh, above the beach line, the, above the high tide line. Is that because there's more water in the ocean because the glaciers have been melting or is that just because it's like getting more intense? It's actually a bit of both. The ices in the ice caps, both Antarctica and the Arctic, are melting. And that water goes into the oceans, right? Yeah. And so the mean sea level is rising. It's not it hasn't risen very much, but it's definitely rising. But also as the as the uh, storm systems change, when they're very powerful winds, they they push on the on the ocean, and they they can move surface water around, and, oh. and you know cause high tides to be higher than expected. Oh, yeah. There was um. Hold on. It, it's gone. Hold on. It's gonna come back. We were talking about ocean stuff. High tides rising. Oh, yeah. So with icebergs. Yes. I never really knew that, like, oh, there's a tipping point. You know, we have seven years or whatever. But the tipping point of, like, it's, like, a negative consequence or, like, we can't go back is, like, I didn't realize this. But so the icebergs. Iceberg lettuce. Yeah, that's a type of lettuce, yeah. The glaciers <laughs> and ice. They're, like, white, right? So yes. it reflects the heat back into the atmosphere. Yes. But... But when it starts melting, becomes a very deep, dark blue. Mm-hmm. And that dark blue color like retains that heat. So there's a tipping point where if there's enough ice that melts, there's no going back, Dad. <laughs> well, there's no going back unless we come up with some technological solutions. All of the risks that were outlined that you just mentioned are very real. And the tipping point is also very real when the ice melts beyond a certain point. The amount of heat going into the earth goes up for exactly the reason you just gave. But um, I'm always a, a bit of a techno-optimist. We'll, I think we'll come up with engineering solutions where we can reflect back a significant fraction of the sunlight back into outer space, for, for instance, by putting aerosols or small particles into the upper atmosphere. That seems a little 
dangerous though. Well, the idea is that if the Earth is warming up, if the atmosphere is warming up too much, one way of mitigating that is to reflect some of the sunlight away from the Earth so that it doesn't come to the ground and doesn't heat up the Earth and doesn't heat up the atmosphere. And people have thought of maybe putting small particles or small aerosols, which are like little uh, liquid droplets with some chemical in them, like into the upper atmosphere. Well, ha hairspray, yeah. She <laughs> saved the Earth. <laughs> Well, okay. gosh, that's an analogy that would never have occurred to me. But yes, and you, you, you could imagine reducing the amount of heat coming in and cooling the Earth back down. But it's very difficult to control processes like this because you don't cool the Earth down uniformly. You cool it more in one place and not in another place. And then things mix up. So it would have consequences for the weather, which are hard to predict. Seems too risky. Well, I don't know. If the, if the risk of doing nothing is worse, then maybe you'll try it. So what we'll do is we'll, 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 do, we'll do experiments on small local scales just to see how well it works and then build up gradually. But uh, meanwhile, we, we have to start doing our bit. We have to gradually move away from fossil fuels. And maybe not all that gradually because we're putting carbon dioxide and methane into the atmosphere all the time. So here we are, we're talking about the Earth again. We are. And a little, little side note, but also reducing your intake of meat. That's a big one as well. Trying to eat a little more vegetarian-y is good, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. Animal production, it's crazy. Well, sadly, I agree with you. I actually love meat. I love beef in particular. I love lamb. I love I love all of the meats. But it's kind of like, eh, I guess I could give up a little bit if it's for the greater good of our survival. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Dad, as it's taken us a little time, a little chit-chatting, well, this episode is not about the earth but something kind of close to the it's the closest thing to the earth we're expanding outward it is the moon we are going to chat about the moon so when i was like trying to look up cool facts on the moon or like oh like what is it cool like what is it it is quote unquote the moon it's the only natural satellite Earth has. That's correct. So I guess a satellite, I always thought it was like reserved for like, oh, that's a satellite for cell phones or something. But satellite just means it's orbiting something. Yeah. Yes, it means that it's bound to the gravitational field of the Earth. So it orbits the Earth regularly. It's been doing that since uh, over 4 billion years ago. Consistency, A+. plus. So I guess something that I was like thinking about, it's like, what makes a moon a moon? Does it just need to be an orbit of something? And that's like, oh, it's a moon. Well, we're not super definitive about this, but basically anything that orbits a planet in a stable orbit, you know, one that persists for an extended period of time, we would call that a satellite. Mm -hmm. And if it was a natural object, you know, that was not, not a human-made satellite, yes. we would call it a moon. Oh, okay. So the word moon comes from the history of our own moon, because until the time of Galileo, nobody knew about moons around other planets. You saw the moons in Jupiter, right? He did. He saw the four moons of Jupiter. Does Jupiter just have four, or it's like a lot more? Oh, no. Jupiter has maybe 40 or 50 now. Oh, I'm not my. sure. But it's got a lot, a lot more moons. Galileo. Why, why does it have so much more? Sorry, well, I'll let you continue. Galileo? Well, well, Galileo found the four largest moons, and they're relatively easy to see because they're larger, and that as astronomical instrumentation has just gotten steadily better, every time we can see fainter objects, we find more moons. Or when NASA sends a spacecraft to study Jupiter or to study Saturn, these spacecraft discover more moons. Question. Wait, so if an asteroid was like, doo -doo -doo, I'm traveling through space, and it's like, oh, I got pulled into like Jupiter's orbit, 
does it then become the, a moon? That's a very good question. And the answer is actually no. Because if the asteroid starts out not gravitationally bound to the moon, but bound to the sun, it can come close to Jupiter. And it'll speed up as it gets close to Jupiter. But then it, it'll just leave. Oh. So that, that happens a lot, actually. Asteroids come close by. Uh, some of them come close to the Earth or Mars or other planets. But there's no asteroids that like come in on like a trail and then they like get pulled into the orbit of a different planet. No, that doesn't happen. And that's actually because uh, it, that's, uh, it's a mathematical problem, but it's actually something that can be worked out with Newton's theory of gravity. Okay, okay, there we go. Uh, could an Earth, could a planet be a moon of another planet? We wouldn't call it a planet under those circumstances. It'd just be a lively moon? Yes. Truth is, as we're finding more and more examples of planets, we're going to start finding moons around those planets. The moons are harder to find than planets because they're smaller. So we're likely to find systems which may look like what you just described, where the two planets might be similar in size, <gasps> yes. and they could be orbiting each other, and then those <gasps> two as a pair could be orbiting their star. That could be so cool. Honestly, I think it's just a matter of time before we find something like that. But um, and we, we may have to reconsider our terminology. Ooh, super cool. So, uh, so what is the dark side of the moon? Why can we never see it? So there's a little bit of a misunderstanding in this term. Because when people think dark side of the moon, they think it's the far side of the moon that we can't see and that it's dark. Yeah. But in fact, the moon does always show the same face to us because as the moon orbits the Earth, it also spins at exactly the same rate so that we always see the same craters. We, we don't see the other side of the moon. Okay. Uh, it's very interesting. Now, the other side is what people are thinking of when they say dark side of the moon. But the other side gets as much sunlight as the near side. Yeah. Because it's rotating. Some of the time it's dark and some of the time it's bright, just like the, the near side of the moon. So the interesting thing is the moon spins around its orbit, its, uh, sorry, its center at the same rate that it orbits the Earth in such a way that it always faces the Earth with the same size. So, yeah, to try to like make a visual comparison, like if you were to draw a line from one side of the moon to like straight down to Earth, mm -hmm. it's like spinning and that line never gets like twisted or like whatever. That's correct, yeah. Is that just a coincidence? Actually, no, that's a very, very important bit of understanding the orbit. It's produced by the interaction between the gravitational field of the Earth and the solid body of the Moon. The Moon was probably not born this way, but the uh, what we call the tidal forces acting on the Moon have caused the Moon to have a period of rotation that's exactly the same as the period of its orbit. Whoa. Okay, well, we'll also talk a little bit about tides, but before I, I, moving on, I want to talk a little more the dark side. So, yes, dark side, not truly actually dark, except I remember you saying something about, like, there's a crater on the moon that is, like, so deep that it never truly gets any sunlight. Yeah, there's, there's a crater on the southern hemisphere of the moon, and absolutely, in the floor of the crater, in the deep inside, it never gets any sunlight. So it's it's very cold there. Does that make that special or anything? Like, Well, it's not so much special scientifically, but it might be very useful scientifically for putting telescopes in the future, because we like our telescopes to be kept out of the sunlight. And so a telescope in a location that gets no sunlight at all uh -huh. might be uh, advantageous in many ways. Uh -huh. But of course, it would be very expensive to put a telescope there because instrumentation on the moon is expensive. And it'd be particularly expensive to put it at this crater because, you know, we, ha we have not only have to go to the moon, we have to go to this special place. 
and we can't communicate because it's deep in this crater the radio communications are not straightforward wait then how would you use the telescope then if like you can't quite well we'd have to do something like have something in orbit around the moon so we communicated with the thing or the spacecraft that orbits the moon and it communicates with the telescope oh i guess this is a different question like not included but in terms of uh, what is it space i don't know if this is the right word but space pollution you look at the sky and you're just like boom there's like thousands of satellites just clustering Mm -hmm. is that a problem in space where it's like hey we need to like start limiting the amount of like things in orbit it is actually quite a significant concern actually there's a lot of space debris and every now and then two perfectly good satellites collide with each other and they totally destroyed oh uh we're getting better at it the 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 people who manage the orbits of their spacecraft, they know where all the other major spacecraft are. But there are little bits and pieces left over from when those two s- satellites smacked into each other. They broke up into many pieces, and n- nobody really knows where those are all going. So those are floating around, and every now and then they could smack into a functioning satellite and do damage. <gasps> oh, no. That seems, like, irresponsible. Well, I wouldn't go quite so far. Okay, maybe not irresponsible, but... How do you, how do people regulate? Because, you know, cell phones, I know that there are, like, satellites for that. Do they get in touch with, like, people in NASA and be like, hey, we want to put a satellite out there. We'll pay you. Can you do it for us? Like, how does one get a commercial satellite up in space? Uh, there are aerospace companies that, that build rockets and launch uh, spacecraft. So communication spacecraft, for instance, um, launched commercially by the US but also now by the Europeans and by China and I believe also Japan and they do their best not to bang into each other the, the everybody knows where everybody else is uh, but it's a complicated thing because people are, they know but these orbits that they're, they're they're moving very rapidly right so you have to keep track of these orbits very carefully is there not some sort of like mathematical like space program that can like predict it oh yeah there is they're they're very and they're very good but they're not perfect because the uh the orbits can change by small amounts because of interaction with the changing shape of the earth the tides yes the tides for instance so you have to update the orbits as often as possible to um, correct for these these changes all right so (coughs) excuse me all right we're talking about tides now but that, wait, okay, no, no, you can yawn, Dad, it's okay. It's okay. I'm like coughing, and I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, <laughs> I'm okay. Um, so, what are you guys worried about? Like, just the amount of pollution, or like, it just gets in the way of like, having too many? Having too many satellites on Earth starts making it more difficult to do astronomical observations, because they're like ex- extra bright lights, and they're moving around, mm. and they, they get into our images. And so there's an ongoing conversation between the astronomy community and the launcher, the people who launch spacecraft. And that's actually getting more intense with time, because some of the new commercial ventures are launching clusters of satellites, so instead of launching one at a time, they launch a bunch at a time. And... Uh, it's a it's a serious sort of source of concern, but um, hasn't yet become seriously damaging. Whereas in radio astronomy, when people do astronomy with radio telescopes, the development of communications technology slowly reduces the amount of what we call spectrum radio spectrum that's available for the astronomers. Because if you build a big telescope and you just pick up your cell phone or my cell phone, <laughs> that's not very helpful. No, that's not. So it's already a big problem for that. It's already a it's a very significant issue, yeah. Oh gosh. Well, 
Good luck. Yeah. Yeah, goodness. All right. So, yes, tides. It is time. The moon, the tides, the connected, the pull, the push. So, what were we talking about? Like, the... Okay, well, to understand the tides, they are kind of a... They make the earth like an oval E-shape. To really put it to an extreme. But the tides going in and out, it's not really them moving. It's more earth rotating and that oval is staying the same. So this is actually a very subtle but very important question you've asked. So let's let's talk about what's going on. So the tide, the tides on the earth are produced primarily by the gravitational forces of the moon. Yeah. But also by a piece of the story that's due to the sun. Uh-oh. The sun is much further away, but it's also much more massive than the moon. So it actually contributes. But when the moon moves around the earth, the earth is also responding to the gravitational field of the moon. And in fact, what they're both doing is they're moving around what we call the center of gravity of the two the two bodies. Hold on, hold on. The two bodies meaning the earth and the moon or the... Yes, the earth and the moon. Okay, yes, yes. yes. Right. So the earth is moving in a very small elliptical path yes. caused by the gravitational attraction of the moon. And the moon is moving in a much larger orbital path uh-huh. caused by the gravitational attraction of the earth. Okay. Now, the gravitational force of a body falls off rapidly with distance. So if you're close to a body, you get a stronger gravitational field than if you're further away. Now, the Earth is not a point. The, the Earth is a nice big planet, right? So the, the side of the Earth that's closer to the Moon mm-hmm. gets a bigger gravitational pull than the pull on the solid Earth, and that gets a bigger gravitational pull than the ocean on the far side of the Earth, okay? Okay. So they experience different forces because they're at different distances from the moon. Question, question. Yes. So rather than, let's say the earth is like uh, the circle here Mm -hmm. and then the waves are like like that. It's not really an oval. It's more of like an egg shape. Is it an egg? Well, it's it's maybe a bit like a a football. Mm. So when the moon is high in the sky, the oceans near you, near us or near that location experience a greater relative attraction than when they're 90 degrees away and more so there than when they're on the opposite side of the earth. Mm. So you, you get high tides on both sides of the earth. You get a high tide on the side that's facing the moon and you also get a high tide on the surface of the earth that's away from the moon. Wait, okay, other and question. Wait, question. So there are two cycles of high tides during a day or something? Yeah, that's right. Okay, awesome. So that's the or the moon rotating around the earth and that's what the high tide is? The moon is responsible for the high tide and the, and well the moon is responsible primarily responsible for all of the tides in the oceans. There's also an effect due to the sun as I mentioned earlier but it's it's less significant than the moon. Does the does the sun do the same thing kind of? Basically the same thing. But just like lesser. Just lesser, yeah. Okay. Now there's there's some complications here that are actually very significant because the oceans can't just move around at will. To get a high tide, a lot of water has to move, and the, the continents get in the way. So the ocean does its best to respond to this attraction due to the moon, but it's always a little bit late. So in fact, the high tide usually occurs a few hours after the moon is directly overhead, because there's this delay. And so the, this oval shape is not pointed directly at the moon. It's offset uh-huh. by a little bit. Oh, whoa, that's weird. Wait, why? Wait, I don't know if what you just said sunk in. So 
the the continents get in the way? How do they get in the way of gravity? No, they though? don't get in the way of gravity. They get in the way of the water moving around oh, to respond to the gravity. Oh, 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 interesting. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then there's more. Mm-hmm. It's even better. Because of this offset, this football-shaped Earth with its own gravitational field acts on the moon to push it a little bit away. Oh, no. And so the moon is actually moving away from us at about just under four centimeters per year. Yeah, that was another point that I had. It's moving away. It's getting steadily further and further away. We, we can measure it using lasers. It's not enough to have consequences on human timescales. But the moon was once upon a time in the deep distant past much closer to the Earth. Yes. And it was much larger. And the length of day was shorter and the tides were gigantic. So it was a very different circumstance at the beginning. And the, as the Earth moves away, uh, sorry, as the moon moves away from the Earth, the length of day grows greater and greater. So we have a, long, a longer and longer day because of this movement of the moon. Question, have we had like a noticeable length in, let's say, the 1900s to today? Or like, oh, it's a minute longer than it was back then. Oh, I, no, it's uh, less than a second in the last century. Okay, so whatever, right? Yeah. So if, if you're keeping accurate time, it matters. Mm-hmm. But for, uh, for you and me personally, it, it's inconsequential. So the tides, would you say they're important, though? Well, they're, they're very important for navigation on the oceans, right? Because there are high tides and low tides. When ships come in and out of harbor, it makes a big difference whether they're at high tide or low tide. I mean, not that we'll, you know, worry about it, but <clears throat> will the tides ever get to a point where it's so insubstantial that it's the same level? Like there's no high tides or uh, low tides? Well, if, if you leave the Earth-Moon system to its own devices, eventually the moon will move uh-huh. further and further away and the length of day will get longer and longer until the length of the day and the orbit of the moon are the same. But that's so far in the future uh-huh. that other changes in the solar system will, will take over before then. Wait, like what? So in about another five billion years, the sun will expand and become very luminous and pretty much end all life on the Earth. We're talking about five billion years, so we don't need to worry about it just yet. Is this when it's dying, the sun? That's the, fir- the, the beginning of the end, yes. Oh, okay. Before it dies, it gets very, very luminous, like a thousand times or more brighter. We'll talk about the sun. Maybe next episode. But is the moon important to the Earth, though? Wait, what were you saying? Hold on. Let's go back. The tides, they're important. Oh, low energy, Dad. <laughs> low energy. It's okay. The, tide, the tides are important because of tides. The movement of the oceans around the Earth is significant. It's significant for navigation, coming in and out of harbors. Mm-hmm. It's part of the beauty of being in a coastal community. You can see the tides come and go on the beach. Yeah. Oh, wait, yes, question. The question came back. It came back. Thanks. So, the moon, how does it affect the time of day? Like, how long the day is? Like, why? Well, because of this tidal um, interaction, the moon is moving further and further away. Mm -hmm. And there's a principle in physics called conservation of angular momentum. So, yes, and we don't have time to go into that. That's okay. But as the moon moves further away from us, it gets getting more angular momentum. That has to come from somewhere, and it comes from the rotation of the Earth, and the Earth has to slow down to balance things out. Okay. So the the day is getting steadily longer Uh with time, but not by enough that we would notice. Yeah, but why does the moon... 
orbit the same as the Earth. You said that's not a coincidence. That is because of... I can't tell if you're frozen. I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. <laughs> okay, so remember how we were talking about the moon orbit is the same as the Earth's? One side is always facing the Earth. And I asked, like, oh, is that just a coincidence? Oh, okay, that's right. The moon shows the same side, the same face to the Earth mm -hmm. all the time. Mm -hmm. And because the moon went through its own version of the process we're talking about where its day got steadily longer, mm -hmm. um, quite early in, uh, in the solar system. And it doesn't have oceans, but you can have tides in solid bodies. They're weaker, but it's a much lower mass object, so it didn't take as much force to slow it down. So it's been slowed down as far as it can go, which is basically so that it's in sync with the, its orbit around the Earth. So it's the early history of tidal interactions actually in the moon itself what? that have produced the circumstance that the, the, the moon is always looking at the Earth with the same face. So in the beginning of the moon, let's say, there used to be lakes or ponds. Is that what you're saying? Uh, we don't think so. No, it was uh, probably always just a rocky, barren, barren place. So the Earth had little, little whatevers and then the moon's like, I like that. And then it just stuck with it. Yeah. It's okay. I don't know if I'll fully understand that in a way that I could describe it to somebody else, but <clears throat> that sounds cool. Well, honestly, I, I teach tides to my first year students at Harvard. Mm -hmm. It's what is the most difficult class in the semester. Really? Wait, why? Why would you say it's difficult? Because tidal interaction is subtle. It, you, you have to actually have to understand gravitational forces very well. You have to understand the interactions between complex bodies. Yeah, I guess math. Do you teach tide stuff then that seems more like earthy though oh yeah okay well there you go there you go well but to understand the moon you have to understand tides yeah what well, a question does the amount of water like the glaciers they're melting there's more water in the ocean mm -hmm. it's subtle but does that affect the tides in the moon that's a good question actually i don't I haven't seen any calculation of that effect, but I think there must be a consequence for the what we we're just talking about. Mm -hmm. My guess is that it would be difficult to calculate because the oceans moving around is a complex thing because these continents are pretty big. They get in the way a lot. And when you change the amount of water in the oceans, it's bound to have some effect. Yeah, but you don't. But I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Well, the other coincidence of the moon that I know is a coincidence because you've told me before and I'm like, that's so cool. What is the eclipse? Right. Ah, yes, eclipses, yes. Yes. So an eclipse of the sun, which is the, the spectacular event, is when the moon comes between the earth and the sun. And it turns out that the size of the moon on the sky is about half a degree, is pretty much the same as the size of the sun on the sky. So the moon can just cover the sun. If it were much bigger, we'd have many more eclipses and they would, be, they would last longer. But the moon has to line up almost perfectly to get an eclipse. And, and that appears to be just a pure coincidence that they're the same size on the sky. It has no fundamental physical meaning. But that it can't be just a coincidence. We're alive at this time. We're witnessing this total celeste body just moving through space yes. at the perfect time absolutely and an eclipse is a wonderful thing to experience i hope you see one one day well dad i and, have uh, wait oh you have i have seen it i told you about it you have you you've been in oregon yes robbie and i we and a group of his friends they're pretty cool they're i like them anyways so we went to oregon it's a 10-hour drive it's like whatever we're doing it we're gonna see the eclipse it's gonna be great and so we went to this festival, it was called Oregon the Eclipse. 
And I was like, oh, that'll be fun. There's gonna be lights and art installations, similar to like a smaller scale in Burning Man, but like it's not in a desert. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> it was a very interesting crowd to paint a picture. Yeah, it's similar to Burning Man. People are wearing cool outfits. There were these giant porta potties, mm-hmm. not porta potties, but like giant <clears throat> pooping stations where you just poop, and there's this giant dumpster that has like fertilizer in it. So they're like eco friendly. They're like, yeah, your poop and pee will help with like <laughs> what is it? Comp composition? No. Compost. Yeah, compost. I'm like, wow, this is a this is an experience. But okay, this is the eclipse part. We're sitting down. Where it's on a prairie, so it's quite flat, and it's everyone's out on their picnic blankets. It's cool. To my left, there's a hut called the Mother Womb, and I'm like, whatever, not my jazz. It's okay. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, like this gush of like cold air sweeps across, and it's like, ooh, it's like kind of cold because like the shadows of the moon, and it's like coming. It's like wow, like another reason why it's like, oh, I like space. Is like, oh, you're taken out of your small individual. Like this is something so much more grand and like beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then, <clears throat> yeah, they passed out the little eclipse glasses, and so everyone's putting them on. You slowly see the moon start to like eclipse the uh, mm-hmm. the sun, and I remember just you know, oh, the coincidence. This you know, what a time to be alive. This is so beautiful. It was so moving. I remember almost like swelling up with tears a little. But then all of a sudden, howling started erupting from people just going, oh, woo, like, oh, 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 oh. and that tear just went right back up. And I'm like, mm, that's, well, that was, be- that was a, an interesting uh, parallel. So that was my experience with the eclipse. Well, that's great because, you know, I saw the same eclipse. Yeah. But I was once, I was one state over. You were in Oregon. I was in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. No howling. Hmm? No howling. No, I wasn't. I wasn't surrounded by a, a, a such a large, enthusiastic group yes. of young people. Yes, <laughs> that's a way to put it. <laughs> but yeah, it is. It's very. Were you moved, Dad? Was that your first eclipse? It mustn't have been. I was very moved. That was that was, that was my first eclipse. Really? So you oh. you got such a head start over me. Wait, how occurring are eclipses? Like how? Yeah, common are they? They're about sixty-six or sixty-seven per century. Most of them are over the open ocean. Oh, um, I see. So cruise cruise ships go out to take take people to see them. And for instance, the one that you saw before it came across Oregon, it was over the Pacific Ocean. So there was a lot of you know eclipse viewing from ships, and that's just because there's more ocean than land, right? Yeah. So, yeah. but that for people who are enthusiasts, people who love watching eclipses, you can see an eclipse. You know, every couple of years if you want to. But what are the... I don't want to take a cruise. I don't want to take a boat out there. What is the percentage that you can be... You can go somewhere on land and be like, yeah, let's just watch it. Less than 66 times? Well, it's definitely less than 66 or so, but not much less because typically what happens is the moon and the earth and the sun are all in motion. Mm -hmm. So the shadow of the moon moves across the surface of the earth and it's it's just like a line. So the line will spend most of its time on the open ocean, but it will cross a beach. Beach mm-hmm. and go into some some land and so that's what happened with the eclipse that you saw and that i saw you know you saw it minutes before i saw it because there was it was moving so rapidly yeah wait how come then what's your excuse for seeing for not seeing this is your first time i have no good excuse actually i i honestly i should have done it a lot earlier yeah, what the so, heck? <laughs> but what the heck i got i've seen two now so i saw one in chile mm-hmm. which was also great so the moon is very cool to see 10 out of 10 very moving oh absolutely it's a it's it's a wonderful uh, it's a wonderful neighbor. It's a good neighbor. <laughs> Does us no harm. Does us some good. 
Yeah, it's good, yeah. beautiful to look at. And also, tonight there's a full moon, so you should go out and oh, take a look at it. there you go. Well, this podcast, or this episode, may be released way later. So, what's the date? It's July 24th. If you saw the full moon at that date, good for you. There'll be more to come. There'll be, the, I guess. Yeah, full moon's about once a month. Yeah, there you go, I guess. There you go. So, pl- plenty of them. Wait, there's... Ugh, I know we were trying to wrap up, and then wrapping up on, like, the eclipse, the moving. That was such a good ending, but... What's a super moon? Or what's like when the moon turns pink or red or orange? What is that? Super moon's a little bit of a strange term, actually, because it's it's not much different from any other full moon. The moon is not in a circular orbit around the Earth. It's in an elliptical orbit, so Mm. it comes closer to us and further away. And a super moon is when you have a full moon when the moon is close to the relatively close to the Earth, so it's a little bigger. It's not a very big effect. The, The word super is a great exaggeration. And the colors for the moon, they're all produced by things going on in the atmosphere of Mm. the Earth. So Mm -hmm. the moon doesn't change color. The sunlight doesn't change color. But if you see the moon close to the horizon, it'll look redder. For the same reason that the sun looks a little red at sunset. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, we are coming up on 55 minutes, which is perhaps an hour. So I know last time we were talking about we should decide on like, not decide, but maybe go over some signing off. Goodbye. Thanks for listening. Yes, I think that's perfect. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Well, you don't want to try to do some like, thanks space fam. Catch us later on the like, we're all all stardust babies and like carbon copies of... Wow, Chloe, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) You can do it. It's okay. I'm I'm, I'm the older, I'm the professor, the father, you know. Yes. I am less effusive in my my um my speaking all right well we'll try to wrap it up well thanks for listening and again if you have any questions that are related to this the topic of la moon and the tides send them over and we'll answer it uh oh yeah email it to so space podcast at gmail.com that's that's what we'll look at the questions all right thank you yes Wrap it up, Dad. You do it. You do it. I'd like to thank everybody for listening and thank you, Chloe, for speaking with me like this. It's beautiful. Yes, it's it's very lovely. Okay, I think we're done now. Thanks for listening again. Bye. Bye.